Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, everybody. This is George Armistead, and we are back with a fresh episode here of Life List, a birding podcast. I am with my co-host, Alvaro. How are you doing today, Alvaro? Good. How are you doing, George? Everything's really sunny and warm out here in California. Actually, like they say in the brochures, it's one of those days. It doesn't actually happen most of the time. Mm. Mm. Sounds nice. Yeah, it started out pretty gloomy here, but uh, has turned into a beautiful day. So I want to get to the good stuff here, guys. We have a special guest, a Whoa. special guest, our first interview uh, on Lifeless. Yikes. Yeah. This is look new out. for us. Very new, very new, very scary. Hold on to your, hold on to your hats, strap yourself in here. We are very pleased for our guest who is a legend, I dare say. Very pleased today to have with us someone who's not only a good friend to both me and Alvaro, but also an incredibly gifted ornithologist. What does Dan Lane do, you might ask? Well, a little bit of everything. Originally from Drew, New Jersey, he migrated south to Louisiana, where he still remains for the most part, working away on his East Baton Rouge Parish list, at least when he is not traveling to beloved Peru. While Dan has led trips for Field Guides Incorporated the world over, he still spends most of his time abroad in the country nearest to his heart. Not only do the birds, the cuisine, its people, and of course all the roadside puppy dogs all tug at his heart, Dan is, as chance would have it, also the author of The Birds of Peru, as well as one of the book's primary artists. He is one of the greatest students and experts on the world of bird sounds, with thousands of recordings in the Macaulay Library and Xenocanto, Dan has discovered and are described multiple new species of birds, perhaps most famously the scarlet banded barbet and the brand spanking new inti tanager. On top of all this, he is an abhorrent and shameless adorer of horrible and terrible puns. And I've only just learned as well that he is he does an incredible imitation of a French Canadian world champion moose caller. Please welcome to the show DFL, or as I like to call him, Dan Frickin' Lane. Welcome, Dan. Merci, merci. <clears throat> hey y'all, good to be here. Yeah, man, good to have you. And what is up with the moose call? Tom Johnson told me this. He was like, "You gotta hear Dan give do his moose call imitation at some point." I don't know if today's the day. But, I don't think so. You know, I don't think that that's for a different podcast and perhaps a whole different like genre. Uh, I, wow! I don't think we want to put our listeners through that. But it's, it's, it's a matter a, of fact. I'm starting a moose call podcast <laughs> next <laughs> week. Glad to hear. Yeah, is that uh, what was the other the other phrase that uh, y'all have been talking about in previous shows? Uh, uh, rockhound. The rockhound. Rock yeah, hound. moose callers and rockhounds. That's going to be the, your new podcast. I did want to. Uh, tell a little story about the first time I believe that I met Dan. I think I might've met at Cape May once or something like briefly, but then like you, me, Chris Witt, maybe Matt Sharp, one or two others. We did, we did the drive down to the Outer Banks from Philly to do some Christmas bird counts. Yeah. And, with Ned, if I remember correctly, I think Ned was there. Yeah. Ned would have definitely been there. Ned Brinkley yeah. would have definitely been there for yeah. some of those. He would have joined us probably from Norfolk on down. And, uh, and, yeah, and I remember – I can't remember what was out on the beach. I mean, there was always a lot of gulls out on the at the tip of Hatteras. Oh, yeah. Garden. 
I, yeah. I, well, I recall there was some really soft sand. That was what was out on the beach. Yes, that was and, the most and, memorable part of that. And experience. it was my car that we were using at the time. And yeah, I, and I guess I, I hadn't learned how to uh, play the clutch properly when driving in soft sand. I burned out my clutch. Yeah, I was going to say, I believe that was the last drive for that vehicle. That no, was... it wasn't. But it, it, it required a tow, and I think I had to have a new clutch installed. And that was... No small chunk of change for a for a grad student at the time. So, yeah, yeah. that was fun. <laughs> I, I just I remember like we were like, oh, we could do this. Yeah, it's no problem. You know, it's just people drive out here all the time. Let's go out here. There's some gulls. Maybe we'll find some long spurs. You know, and like, yeah. and then and then it's like the you know your vehicle's like stuck, and it was pretty close to like the tide line. Like the like there was water coming in. Because I think that wow. was where the firm sand was. We were like trying yeah, to like I, the firmer. I don't sand. remember now. I, yeah. Well, I have a vision well, of there was of probably like, looking... like fifteen people in one car. That was probably the problem too. <laughs> yeah, probably wasn't used. To I just have this vision, there. and maybe I've maybe I've created this vision in my head. But I have this vision of like like we were like, all right, Dan, sorry we stuck your car, but there's birds to see. We got to go, and we're like we're off in the dunes, like looking at long spurs or something. That, and I look back, and I was like, boy, that sounds I like, about I right. I, I recall is... I recall being like, wow, they just <laughs> left me here. <laughs> I remember, like, I think the tide's coming in too. It looks like the tide's really kind of getting close to his car. There, ah, oh, well, I'm sure he'll be fine. Yeah, you know, and people I don't say, you know, they always say that birders have tunnel vision. It's like, you know, here's you know, friend in distress, guy you've just met, you know, and you leave him there. It's like, well, you know, there could be a long sprout here. So sorry, buddy. <laughs> That's right. You, you'll figure this out. We'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> and then Al, like you and I, we've known each other since the early to mid nineties, but we hadn't actually met in person right. until like 2006. Yeah. <laughs> Something yeah, we, like that. We wrote a series of articles in birding on how to identify uh catharis, you know, the spotted That's thrushes, right. because we both came up on these really difficult to identify birds. And we were talking about it. We said, Oh, we should write an article. And um, Dan illustrated it. And, you know, we, put together this set of articles, which amazingly, I think, you know, to me, <laughs> amazingly is still sort of the only article out there on this subject. You think by this point, you know, somebody else <laughs> would have redrawn the map and, you know, just sort of figured out a whole bunch of new stuff. But um, yeah. uh, it's funny, sometimes birding moves slowly, you know. <laughs> and I, unfortunately, those articles are not really available to the online community the way I wish they were. It seems like there's a lot of folks who are posting, you know, photographs of catharist thrushes and saying, what is this? And and I, I'm not really able to, I mean, I've got sort of these scanned PDF yeah. versions, but they're not really high quality. I don't know if you have anything better, but yeah, I we'll, wish we'll the birding could somehow yeah. do that for us. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, no, the, those are great pieces. They were, I mean, they were they were big at the time. I remember everybody was like, "Oh, this is next level." And, and I, I knew, I think I knew both of you guys at that point, but didn't realize that you guys didn't know each other. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, we yeah. like like Al said, we 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 communicated considerably um, through uh, bird chat. I think it was, wasn't it? The the listener way back you know, when, wow. and uh, bird chat, and that's how we we kind of got in touch, and then we just started working on this, and it took us like six or seven years to get the whole thing finished and published. Um, and uh, yeah, and then it was another six years or something before we actually met at a field guides meeting, if I remember correctly. Yeah. 
It's <laughs> <is> pretty fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah. It was like we knew each other, but we just never had seen each other kind of thing. Right. <laughs> had right. to get and lifers. Had to get your lifer lifers. That's yeah. right. Yeah. The, the in-person lifers. Mm-hmm. No, it's, um, it's, you know, I've, um, ever since then I've, I've been impressed at your level of sort of detail at which you look at things, you know, and also, um, some of the, this, you know, when I first met you, you know, some of the sound stuff you're, you're doing, uh, I was like, I felt like, oh man, I really, I really need to help my game. This Dan Lane guy, you know, he's, a, he's really, really, you know, he's listening to bird sounds here and learning all this stuff. And, you know, and I'm sitting there drinking beer. i I listened to your your last podcast that you posted a few days ago and and i have to agree with you on the night flight stuff like that is i i've i've tried really hard to to learn night flight calls and i think that there's a combination of of like the lack of context yeah that you have because you know you don't have a habitat that you can use to help you sort out what likely candidates there are it's the night and sky, Dan. It's the night yeah. sky, yeah. And and then on top of that, it's like some of these things are so far away that the the attenuation of the sounds just don't right doesn't permit you to hear the sounds really clearly. So, if, but if I'm, I'm sound, totally on board with you on that one. If the sound in fall is moving north, it's a small build Elania. That's the, oh, the, that the right? key. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I thought you were going to say like if it's moving north, then it's going to be slightly red, red, red It's Moving south will be blue yeah. tint. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. They don't account for that, right? If it's a really fast bird, it, it's going to go like where? Yeah, the Doppler. <laughs> that's right. That's why they use Doppler radar, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> that call note. Nice, nice. Important, important subjects here that we're 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 seeing too. Um, good stuff. One one of the main things actually we wanted to talk to you about, Dan, was. The fact that you've discovered how many how many new species have you either discovered or been a part of describing? Um, where, where are you with that now? I know you were near in double digits. I think last time I talked to you about this. So, yeah, I think um, Dan might be one of the few people in the world who actually has to like use multiple fingers to uh, count how many species <laughs> they've you know described. You know, it's a, it's, well, it's amazing. I hate to say it, but you may not be that far off. Let me, let me actually, I've got a list here. I could take a look. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it actually has crossed species the species and most of us have had cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it looks like, you know, species, there's two subspecies that I think will not likely be splits, but I'm up to 10 new taxa at this point. Uh, taxa being, you know, a, a species or subspecies, a nameable population um so i'm up to 10 with this most recent one and i've got probably another 10 or so that i need to try to get done so wow yeah that uh, many in the works i i I figured you had a couple i didn't realize it was that many yeah no it's it's yeah there's uh actually it's more it's but many of those are also subspecies at best i would say or sort of arguably could be around the border but kind of what drew me down here, right, to Louisiana, um, was when I was 12, I was, I, our, my family had received a bunch of back issues of Audubon magazine. And um, I was reading through those. And there was an article 
what caught my eye was this gorgeous painting of a of a little owl sitting by a sprig of orchid, you know, in a clearly a tropical setting. And so I read the article, and uh, it was about this place called the LSU Museum of Natural Science, and particularly focusing on the work of <clears throat> two people in particular. One was John O'Neill, and one's Ted Parker. And it talked about the fact that, that these folks and students who've been working with them had been describing and discovering these new species to science in Peru, in South America. And that kind of blew my mind at the time. Uh, and so I, I just sort of decided right then and there, well, that's, that's what I need to do. I need to, I need to figure out how to get down there and, and try to be part of that program because that just sounds like the coolest thing on earth, which, you know, I think I, most people agree it is. And, um, so I, I basically just sort of focused on, on, uh, you know, what I would need to do to get into this program, you know, studying Spanish and taking biology courses and, um, I even contacted Van Remsen, who is the, he just retired, but was the, uh, the main professor, main uh, curator of birds at the museum. When I graduated from, from high school, I think I, I, I think I just called him up. I cold called him out of the blue and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm uh, really interested in this program. I was just wondering if there's any chance at all that I could join an expedition. And Van, you could kind of hear on the other end of the line, he was like, uh, well, uh, you know, sight unseen, we don't normally accept people into this program on expeditions. We actually have, <laughs> so this, this we have Van. enough students who Van are, who are yeah, it was Van. And he's like, you know, we, we actually have uh, enough students who are all fighting for positions on these expeditions that I don't think we have any spare spots that we could just give to others. But, you know, and he gave me advice on what I should do to try to to angle to get into the program. Uh, although I, I don't think Van remembers that conversation. I'm sure he probably got several people who did that, but uh, I, I followed his advice and, and uh, luckily was able to get into the program. And so that was, that was really the main way that I got into LSU. And uh, my purpose wasn't to get a degree at LSU, although, you know, I got a, a master's degree in the process, but it was to get into the field and, and work with John. Ted at that point had, had already died. And, you know, just by sheer dumb luck, my very first expedition in 1996, the, I was the person to spot the scarlet banded barbet first, and that was a new species. So that was kind of the best and worst thing to have happened to a 20 year old kid. It's just a shame, Dan, that it wasn't a better looking bird, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, um, just to backtrack for, you know, so the, uh, the audience too, there, there's something really special about a brand new species that maybe some people get confused with a split, right? So let's yeah. say, you know, in the future, we decide that marsh wren is two different species, one in the east, one in the west. They split, so we now have two species from one. But that is not a new species because there already is a name mm-hmm. attached to one of those new forms. Right. So when, when we're talking that Dan's found new species, these are things that exist in the world that didn't have a name. Right. And Previously not an unknown. English name, yeah. but a scientific name that they actually go into the, you know, the scientific world with this is something new that science didn't know. If we split something, we know those things, we just have reassessed them kind of almost like a, you know, like 
accounting. It's an accounting problem, but you know, this is actually new. So just, you know, just people are wondering, what's the big deal of new species? They happen all the time, right? No, but they don't happen all the time. Splits happen all the time. That's a good observation. So for example, uh, there, there actually have been two new species described from the United States in the past, what is it now, 40 years, which is kind of amazing in itself. Um, And one, I think a lot of people, actually, I was just talking to a client on this last tour who didn't realize it was, it was newly described was the Gunnison sage grouse. You know, this was a bird that people had been seeing their hunters had been hunting. In fact, that's how it was basically discovered. The wildlife biologists who were receiving the information from the hunters about their bags, effectively, uh, were discovering that there were these two size classes in in sage grouse that were being hunted. And I don't know what it was that, that keyed them in, that it seemed to be geographic, that there was a certain population that had smaller birds, always. Um, and so I think that was how people first got aware of the fact that there was this different population of sage grouse and it didn't have a name, right? People didn't even recognize it as different from the rest of sage grouse. And so this uh, group of, of uh, scientists from, I don't remember what university, I think it was in Utah. Is that right? Basically started following up on this. And they, they, I think the first thing they discovered after realizing there was different size classes was that in fact, there were different plumage characters between at least the males of the two populations and then eventually they started observing them doing their displays and they discovered their displays were different. And so here you have this undescribed yeah. species of sage grouse. So I mean, that's a pretty huge thing since the, I think the previous newly described bird from the United States was like 80 years earlier. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what it was, but it was something like, yeah. you know, right around the turn of the last century. And then the second case is this Cassia crossbill. Um, which has just been accepted by the AOU or the AOS, I guess now. Um, although I guess there still are some people who are not entirely convinced of the, the case for that. But yeah, those were those were genuine new newly named birds, which is basically what is meant when people say, you know, a new discovery. Um, and yeah, so a split would just be you know splitting. Audubons and Myrtle Warblers would be a split. And as you, <laughs> right there, you have two names already. These birds were, were described a hundred something years ago. And so that that's a split, right? So you've got these two populations that are diverging and they're a little bit different in, in their morphology and their calls and so on. And, you know, there's the, the same sort of thing is perhaps going to happen with white-breasted nuthatches and there's the fox sparrows and there's a whole bunch of, you know, I think most birders, uh, who have spent time kind of researching North American birds are aware of several cases that they're just waiting. The Willets is another one where they're just waiting for the, the AOU to, yeah. to ratify the split. But all the members of the split are recognized taxa. There's subspecies presently, but you know, all it, all it takes is removing that middle name and they're going to be a species separate from one another. And so that's, that's a, a slightly different scenario than, a completely newly discovered taxon, um, which is a rare event, as you say. And, and, you know, um, the, the one thing too, that I think, you know, I was, I was chatting with George about this uh, a few days ago is that, so we've been, we've been birding for a while and 
birding has changed in all sorts of ways over the years. And, and one of the things that's happened, especially as more new people have come in on it, and it's, there's no negative to this, it's just the way it is. But birding has kind of, it used to be really, really allied closely with science, sort of ornithologists and birders were sort of like in this continuum of like the field birders were field ornithologists, you know, and, and, and that everybody kind of knew how the science worked back in the day, because it was sort of an integral part of the birding scene. And today you can become a birder, brand new birder, and almost not actually have much contact to the scientific world of birds, the ornithological world. And, and I think it's an interesting situation that we're in. So, and, and also, you know, for us, you know, all three of us who've been around this for enough, we, we sometimes forget that people don't know how or why some of this stuff happens the way it happens. But Mm -hmm. one thing that it'd be cool if you could talk about, Dan, is how a name is associated with like in a museum, how that name is kept and how that name actually has some real life tangible uh, reality in the scientific world. And and I'm talking about specimens, right? Um, Right. How did you, you know, sort of explain to people what that is and and the system in a sense, you know, kind of in a, in a way that people can go, Oh, okay. I, I kind of get it now. Why, why this is. Yeah. Um, that's a great question there. That's so, you know, science of course requires verifiable facts, if you will. Uh, and so when you're, when you're, so they say, (laughs) yeah, right. I mean, I guess that's, there, there is some question on In that theory. these days, but uh, <laughs> when you're when you're naming a, a new taxon of pretty much any kind of organism, and this is true from bacteria all the way up to whales, you know, this is like any plants, you know, mammals, insects, whatever you're talking about. That I think that most of these organisms, you need to have a certain number of inf- pieces of information available and. And when you name a taxon, there there is almost always a need for what's called a type. You know, it's that gold standard. So when you think about, for example, uh, the metric system, in France, there's actually a spot where there are the official meter stick and the official kilo, you know, weight and so on, these, these, these standards that everything else could conceivably be measured against in order to be sure that you your your kilo is the same as the standardized kilo right so this is a similar idea so in the world of birds you have a, a museum skin that is going to be the representative for that name grounds or anchors that individual species right it's that's like the, right yeah the thing so that anchors it and tethers it to science Right. And, and so that name is forever attached to this single specimen, this single, yeah, specimen that, that is uh, stored in some place where people have a chance to review it in the future, one hopes, if it doesn't get destroyed by a Second World War or, you know, something of that nature, which has happened. And so that's, that, that specimen is the one to which the name is most best attached to that particular individual. Hey, um, Dan, you know, some people might think, okay, well, you know, at this point, 
the the physical specimen, the, the the skin in the museum, which often is associated with a recording, it's associated in these days with uh, DNA and all this other stuff. They some people might say, "Hey, look, um, why not just grab some blood, little DNA or something from the bird, a feather, uh, and and that's it." What are the issues you see with that that situation in terms of a type specimen being a vial? of DNA. <laughs> Let's simplifying it. Of course it's not a vial of DNA. You extract from it, but but the the main issue is if you don't have a physical specimen available for people to review in the future, then there may be some real questions about what that holotype really was. I mean, just imagine most birds that are being described new to science these days and for that matter, most that have been over the past 200 years, are not super distinct. They're often something that looks a lot like a related species. And there have been many cases where there has been confusion about what population is the correct population to apply a name to. It's really important to have the, the, the actual physical specimen to have phenotypic characters, meaning plumage characters, measurements, that you can then yeah. compare other I was, birds. I was going to say, I was going to say that um, the the way that we interact with the these birds, right, is that we see them, mm -hmm. and you know we hear them and so forth. But we actually see these things as a living, breathing bird with a certain kind of structure and coloration and so forth, and and a a a feathered specimen kind of um, immediately gives us an idea of like, okay, this is what this thing looks like. You can then start measuring and do all sorts of other things. But a little vial of DNA, it, it we we can't interact with that in nature in a sense. Mm. You know, we we I think yeah, I think a lot of folks struggle to understand all of us have some you know, you guys have considerable museum background. I, I have a, a bit myself. As Al was alluding to earlier, I think Early on, people really came at birding. Often, they were encouraged by uh, scientists or people that that had some background in science. And now, birding is so popular that with, that people are finding it all sorts of different ways. Often, digital photography, if not other 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 ways. And I think it's hard for some of those folks to understand not only the value of an individual specimen, but of a series of specimens like you're talking about and just the information that you can get from one individual specimen. And especially if there are no other representatives of that species or very few, every, every single specimen for a bird like that is intensely valuable to, to scientists. And maybe, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, both of you guys. And maybe I'll start with you, Al. You know, if you're looking at a, a single, you know, specimen, or even a couple specimens for something that's really scarce. What value do those specimens represent to not just scientists, but our, you know, our, the general public's understanding of a species? Well, they're really valuable, and in museums, they're treated in like they're they're an irreplaceable you know, artifact like out of King Tut's tomb, let's put it. You know, this is the level at which museum people treat these specimens. They're they're not throwaways. They're very 
uh, and obviously there are types and some, some specimens are much more valuable and they're kept in separate places and they're in fireproof type containers, let's call them. Um, but I have looked at type specimens of various seabirds and some of the Chilean stuff I did and also went, you know, in New York to see some of these oddball seabirds that are that were collected in the 1800s or early 1900s of these storm petrels that people haven't, you know, sort of seen again or, you know, and they're starting to see them now in these expeditions and sorting out what they might be. Are they a different species or what? And you see this real thing and you're thinking, you know, you go, oh my God, look at this. You know, this looks like nothing else on earth right here. And you you do get this sense of, wow, it might be one specimen or two collected during a period of time way back. And first of all, I marvel at the fact that people have kept these for so long mm-hmm. so that I can look at it, yeah. you know, hundreds sometimes of years yeah, after like the Stevens person. Island Wren and, and some of these right. things, you know, it's like, yeah. And, and then I have a direct connection to that actual observation. And then I can put it into context of what I know about these birds. And I was looking at these, you know, the toes and some of these storm petrels kind of tell you who they're, I'm like, wow, this is, this is something amazing. And sure enough, there's people now in the seabird world looking for these things and seeing these stripy um, storm petrels out in the middle of, you know, the South Pacific that probably are a different, you know, species that we don't know where they breed and this and that. And, just giving you that example of how much you can get from a single bird that, you know, in the past might have thought to be like just some oddball or, you know, this or that or whatever. And now we know, oh, okay, no, this is this is actually super valuable. And and just to let people know that these these birds did, you know, die for science in in a sense, um, but they are cared for in a way that allows them to continue living in the scientific world for hundreds of years and inform us in a way that is is really valuable. And, you know, going into different museums, you know, for example, uh, Dan and I were talking about this funny Oriole that showed up in my backyard. One of the things I need to do now is actually go to the museum and look at Oriole specimens to sort out what actually is important. And I cannot do that just from random photographs, you know. Right. I cannot do that. You need to look from at other actual birds, get them in your hands, and and look and, at them and, and compare them, take measurements, right. and all that. Line up ten uh, dull Baltimore Orioles. Line up ten um, Bullocks Orioles. They could be from West Mexico from fifty years ago, five years ago, a hundred years ago, and they're all still. I can look at that and go, okay, I you know, let's let's put some logic behind what I'm seeing here and, and sort of with the, you know, with a museum eye kind of pick out features that later we can actually use in the field. And most people who are using field guides and field marks and all this kind of stuff that seems to come out of nowhere. No, 99.9% of that came from somebody looking at specimens. That's one of the things. Yeah. I always like to say (laughs) the conservation in science often begins with these specimens. I think uh, you know we've kind of set up this this idea of, of of the museums and the specimens and 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 how all this works and names. I we should also say that in today's world, there's actually very very little specimen collection. Yeah, relative um, to I, decades I, I, past. Relative decades past, when when all you know people always say you know back in Audubon's time, all 
ornithology was done with a gun and there's a truth to that and it's totally shifted but the one time where specimen collection happens invariably is when there's a new species involved yeah. and hey yeah I'm talking about new species yeah <laughs> Let's zoom out here. I'll you know redirect if if uh, need be, but I think we want to talk about this new tanager. Yeah, uh, I was working at the time for Wings Tours, and I was doing my very first tour on to Manu, which is uh, George was saying that the Manu Road um, has been, I think it's been open since about the 1980s, and it's one of the few points in southeastern Peru where there's access to this broad elevation band of humid uh, montane slopes and lowlands, which is a very complex ecosystem, as you can imagine. You know, it's the edge of the Amazon, you know, one of the most, one of the most diverse uh, plant animal communities in the world. And so that particular road has received a lot of attention over 30, 40 years now. Uh, it may be one of the best known localities in the Amazon of Peru, certainly, I would say. Yeah. Um, in terms of species bird, diversity bird. and legendary awesome birding, it's way up there. It is, indeed. So here I am and, on the very first tour Polynesian, I ever did. Polynesian, Manu means bird. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice nice uh, interjection there. So uh, we were. I was on this road. I was, I was co-leading this tour with, uh, with Gary Rosenberg and Barry Walker. Um, and we had a, you know, a group of, I don't know, 15 clients or something. And we had just spent several nights in this place called cock of the rock lodge, which is at this middle elevation area, which, uh, is approximately 14 to 1500 meters in elevation. And it was our day that we were departing to go down slope to our next set of our next lodge, which is Amazonia lodge, which is down on the Madre de Dios river. And, uh, so we departed the lodge and we were walking through a section of road that had a lot of bamboo and second growth and what looked like a series of landslides, ancient landslides that had filled in bamboo and second growth. And uh, that section of road is just high diversity. There's lots of really cool birds. And so we were just caught up in this mixed species flock of, you know, um, you know, tropical arboreal species. And we were pointing out, you know, gray mantled wren and yellow rumped ant wren and, all these tangers and all these other things to the group. And in the background, uh, I was hearing this bird song and having never been to the area before, I just sort of was assuming what would be common locally, but not elsewhere. And what we could put off to look at because you've got so many birds, you can't really show everything to the clients at once. Cause there's you know, 150 birds around you kind of thing. And you can only show them 30 or 40, you know, in a relatively small amount of time. So to my ear, that that voice sounded like a bird that I figured would be pretty common lower down called a masked yellowthroat. Fun fact, we never actually saw a masked yellowthroat on the tour, but at the time I wasn't aware that would be a problem. So that, that's sort of what it sounded like. It had a sort of a yellowthroaty sound to it. So I was kind of ignoring that and I was concentrating on the birds I knew we needed to get the group on at the spot. Well, after a little while, I saw a bird fly up and land on the very top of a dead tree, you know, uh, 20 or 30 feet off the ground and it started giving this song. So right there, you know, there was a warning bell that went off. So that's not a yellow throat. They don't do that. So I looked at the bird through a binoculars and it just didn't add up. And so I put it in my telescope and I looked through the scope and this thing was 
you know, about the size and shape of like a scarlet tanager, a piranga tanager. But it was bright canary yellow and it had a black eyebrow and it had a pink bill. That was basically all I could see. I didn't see any other Jeez, markings. Nice. And and this thing, you know, at that point I had, uh, you know, I'd been at LSU since 1995. I'd really been putting in time trying to learn because there's no field guide to Peru at that point. There was a couple of books to like birds of South America, but they were far from complete in their illustrations and so on. So I had really put in the work to try to learn what I could from our collection at LSU as far as informing myself on what birds would be expected and what they looked like. And this thing just wasn't hitting anything. It just nothing. Right. And on top of that, it's yeah. a brilliant looking bird, right? It's like not yeah, only I mean, do you not recognize it, but it's amazing thing. looking, right? It, it, yeah. it, well, the first thing that popped into my head actually was one of these African or Asian Oriolus, one of these old world Orioles that have a black stripe over the eye and a pink bill and yellow plumage and so on. So anyway, in the, in the space of about two seconds, you know, I'd seen this thing. I'd gone, holy crap, I don't know what this is. And I turned to, to Gary Rosemary and said, Gary, take a look at my scope and tell me what you see. And he looks in there and he sort of took his eye off it. And he had this bulging eyed mouth agape look. And he's like, that, <laughs> like what the deuce? That, yeah. Yeah. He's like, the only thing that's coming to mind is one of these African or Asian Orioles. And I was like, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so we turned to Barry Walker, who is a, a British expat who's been living in Peru since the eighties. And he's like the, the, the local Peruvian, you know, birding expert and so on. And he, he knew that road. Cold. Legend. So, we yes. said, Barry, take a look in here and tell me what this is. And Barry looked in the scope and, and he, he turned to us and he says, all I'm seeing is a bouncing branch. And the bird had just Oof. left the, the second Ouch. before he looked at the scope and flown over the ridge and disappeared. Wow. And Gary, uh, thankfully, got a, about a five or six second recording of the last couple of songs it gave before it departed. And so we had that, and and I made a sketch of it immediately in my sketchbook just to try to get all the information I could remember into you know some format. And so that's all we had as far as documentation. No other members of the group saw the bird, just Gary and me, which kind of stings now. And um, yeah, so we we you know we we were just staring at each other and going, well, what what did we just see? We have no idea what we just saw. And it, you know, it, right? These are three guys that know a, these birds back and forth, and you're looking at it, something, and none of you have any idea what it is. Right, and and it, that that in itself is usually like an indication that something really interesting is right. going on. That's a red so, flag. Yeah. Yeah. When when I got back to Louisiana, I made you know, I don't remember if we had, we had any way of scanning and sending emails, but I made photocopies of this thing and I sent it to you know the Eislers who wrote the Tanger book and to Tom Schulenberg and to, uh, you know, Brett Whitney and the folks at LSU and trying to get anyone's opinion of what this might be. And they all basically their response in every case was, are you sure this is what you saw? And uh, so it was, it was this sort of thing where, you know, I wasn't really sure, honestly, I, I was, I thought that's what I saw. And Gary, did you start to, to question uh, yourself? Agree. Did you, did you start well, to like you know, have so some the, doubts? The following year, uh, we did the tour. We we basically were doing this tour every year at the same time in, in October. And the following year, we went back down there and did the tour. And at that stretch in the road, you know, I put in, uh, Carrie gave me a, a copy of his recording. So I was just playing that recording, just hoping this thing would sort of respond. And there was no response. And and I, I seem to think I, I think I went back on my own after that tour to, to really put in the work and see if I could locate this thing. 
And I uh, spent like three or four days just walking up and down, you know, several kilometers of that road with that playback and nothing. There was nothing responding. And so after a while, yeah, I started actually questioning whether we had had, you know, the sun in our eyes or something. You know, I, like one of the right. the other things I was thinking was, well, you know, another bird that this sounds a bit like is this vireo called the brown cat vireo, which is very similar to our warbling vireo here in North America, especially the Western ones in voice and it sort of sounds a bit like that and uh you know there is this phenomenon where a bird's plumage can lose melanins but retain you know the yellow pigments and and i was thinking i wonder if this could be like a vireo that just has this bizarre plumage issue and it's yellow with only a, a bit of melanin retained around its face and uh you know we just saw this thing and it was it looked really weird but it's just a vireo kind of thing so, you know, it was, you know, until, so 2000 was that first observation. And then 2003, now, you know, this is three years later, I, I fully am questioning my sanity on this observation. We were doing the tour once again, it, Gary and it, me were co-leading and we, we turned that same corner and I heard that bird singing off in the distance. And I turned to Gary and I'm like, Gary, that's our bird. And so we walked closer and this <clears> thing was kind of down inside bamboo, low to the ground singing on its own and so i got a recording of it and i played it back and the thing popped right up on top of a tree in response and everybody in our group got great views of it and gary was you know after everyone had looked through the telescope you know at that time you know most of our bird photography was digiscoping so gary was struggling to get to the scope and get the camera set up on the thing to get a photograph of it and it flew he's like elbowing people he's like out of the way everybody well I mean, yeah like we, <laughs> we had to make sure everyone had a chance to see it and by the time the last person was was satisfied and gary was putting his camera to the scope lens the bird flew off and the same thing happened basically we played back mm. to it and it just wouldn't come back in but we we now mm. had you know we had a much longer better view of this thing exactly the same canary yellow black eyebrow pink bill Right. And You're like, we we're not crazy. And we said, this is a real bird. This thing is real. Um, and so that, that really, you know, helped <laughs> a lot. You know, um, I think a lot of people probably have never had this thought even that we, we, we put things into a box, right? Into mm -hmm. an identification, into something based on what we know, what we see in a book. And, and, you know, some things that's not identified, it's, it's going to be somewhere else or it's a vagrant or uh, it, it, there's a box for it somewhere, but when there is no box, cause it doesn't actually exist, right? Mm -hmm. There is no name. It, we're not set up for that as humans. Like we kind of aren't, and we're, you're automatically going to question what you saw because how can you see what isn't really no, there? It doesn't right? exist like, yet. It, it doesn't exist in, in, in the scientific sense, in the fact that you've seen an image of it before or anything. It's just sort of brand new. You you can't – we're not really sort of set up for that. It, you know, we're humans are all kind of we're, – we're set up to know, okay, that's a carrot. That's an orange. That's an apple. Not yeah. – Whoa! <laughs> you know? Well, it, it's so true. I, mean, I can it's, totally understand your idea there of, uh, you know, second guessing. Um, well, especially since we didn't actually have tangible evidence to support it. You know, besides this right, little no photo, a snippet of a recording, nothing. Mm -hmm. What I would call objective evidence that isn't affected by our experience, which I'd call subjective evidence, like a sketch is kind of subjective. 
yeah, we didn't have anything to to really support us in what we thought we saw, except our own, uh, you know, belief that that in fact was what we saw. And as you say, that we, we I think we're generally programmed to have uh, these search images. And if something doesn't fit a search image, well, that must be because we didn't see it as well as we thought, kind of thing. And you know, more often than not, that's true. That's the way it works, right? That's how that's how uh, UFOs and all these things happen. Is people are just they're not familiar enough with all the potential things that can look like what they just saw. And so they jump to the conclusion, well, it must be an alien or whatever. So, I mean, that's, I think that's oh, true. Now of we're going to get hate mail from the UFO people. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> or, or ivory bill woodpeckers. Yeah. Evidently Dan so, is skeptical yeah. <laughs> of the aliens I've been seeing in my backyard. That's Apparently, fine. you know, yeah. Obama says they're real. <laughs> and so in 2004, Field Museum had asked me if I would join an expedition they were doing. So we were already in Cusco. And so I was thinking, well, you know, we're here and um, I've got all the permits necessary to make a collection of this thing. And we talked to the folks who uh, were stewards of the, the properties on the Manu Road again. And I talked to Barry Walker, who had a vehicle. And so I arranged to go back down to this locality on the Manu Road. With the, with the aim to get the specimen finally. And so it was in early June that we went back down in there with Barry and uh, a friend of his, Hugh Lloyd, who was a, a leader for Barry's company, and then uh, Abram Urbai, who was a fellow who'd been a, a, a field assistant of LSU for many, many years, and me, the four of us. We drove down, we spent the night at the Cock of the Rock Lodge again, and then we returned to that same corner, which is now, I guess, mostly known as Tanager Corner. And uh, I gave Barry and Hugh playback of this thing, and we kind of went three different directions, hoping to find it. Meanwhile, Abram was setting up mist nets, and maybe he would just net it without us detecting it first. And we just walked in three different directions, and within 15 minutes, Barry says, I've got the bird! And so we all <laughs> ran up to where he was, and sure enough, here's this thing sitting up in the tree, singing away, you know? So again, get recordings of it. We were watching this thing. It was foraging. Uh, same plumage, yellow with uh, black eyebrow, pink bill. And, uh, you know, so we gave it like an hour and a half or something like that. And, you know, I finally was like, guys, you know, <laughs> this is, this is the thing. This is the, this is maybe the one time that this can happen. I've got to collect this bird. And I had a, you know, a shotgun. Uh, and this was really, the bird was in the canopy. And so it, it wouldn't be possible to net it anyway. And so I, I collected the bird <laughs> And man, you know, picking it up from the ground, my hands were shaking because, you know, finally having it in the hand, having tangible evidence of the existence of this thing and actually being able to see it up close and to see the feather tracks and, and you know, the colors and so on. It was just, it was absolutely incredible. Like I'd, I'd sensed that once before with that barbet years earlier, but here it was again, you know, this brand new thing that was unknown to science. And it's just this kind of amazing feeling. Okay, so you finally, you got the bird in your hand, and it's been, like, from from when, remind remind us the, of how much time elapsed from yeah. your first sighting to actually holding this bird in your hand, finally. Yeah, so it's been basically from the very first sighting until the moment where I finally was able to hold the, this bird in the hand. It was three and a half years, and, uh, you know... 
as you can imagine, I was like, wow, this is, this is it. I finally will be able to, to uh, settle all the questions in my head and start writing this thing up and get this published in a few months. And I was, uh, <laughs> unknown to me, there was a couple of bumps in that road. Mm. So in 2004, you know, this, this bird could have been described in 2004 or five, but, uh, there were some delays. And so the first delay happened that very night, Ouch! which was, uh, so I, I, you know, prepared this, this specimen as a museum skin and I, uh, you know, saved tissues and all this other stuff. And when you prepare a specimen, it's, it has to dry in a, in its position in a relatively stable place. It can't be jostled around and so on. So what we often do is we'll wrap it in cotton and we'll pin that down onto a styrofoam board and let that dry for overnight or maybe, you know, a couple of days to let it set as it is. And that way it'll be the, the sort of stiff specimen that you see in a museum. And, uh, that day we'd also, uh, gone down the road and, and found a couple of other things of interest that we'd collected. Uh, so this wasn't the only specimen I had that day. Um, and so I prepared the specimens and put them on a, a card or a, a piece of styrofoam. And as I would normally do, I stuck it kind of in the rafters over the bed in the, in the bedroom at this lodge. Uh, without really thinking about you know the potential like up in the uh, you, you still you stick it up this. like kind of in the ceiling like towards the ceiling yeah mm -hmm. so like the ceiling is you know this is a you know a tropical lodge so the ceiling is is very high above the the top of the walls there's actually air flow to let it cool off okay because it can get quite warm uh so there's these these sort of cross beams that are within about six feet or seven feet of the ground and so i stuck the 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 board up there to, to dry and I went to dinner and, you know, about an hour and a half later, I came back into the room and the board was on the floor and there were a couple of piles of feathers and some, you know, cotton was kind of strewn across the floor. And I just had a heart attack. You know, I, I was staring at this and I was thinking, oh my God, you know, there's one specimen of this thing in the world and it looks like it's just been eaten by oh an God. animal that got into the room while I was away. And, you know, in retrospect, I actually had been at this lodge previously and seen a mouse opossum walking on those very rafters <laughs> over the roots. And I don't know why that didn't occur. It's like, you know, you might want to find a more secure place to store this. So you, there are so you think a mouse opossum just kind of like ran in on one of the rafters I'm, and chowed down either, on this thing? Either a, yeah, it was either a mouse opossum or some kind of rat. Is my guess. Oh my Got God. in, you know, found these specimens and started to chew. And kind of luckily, it's it, the the bird that was most destroyed was a little flycatcher uh, that was one of the other specimens on the board. And uh, that was the only specimen that was completely destroyed. Then there was another flycatcher and this tanager, where this animal very nicely removed the legs and apparently must have eaten them because I guess there may have been still some some flesh on them or something. But left left the rest of the bird intact, but the the tags which are normally tied onto the legs were very neatly placed beside the specimen on the floor. <laughs> so the tag was there, most of the bird was there, but the legs were missing. And um, you know, it could have been a lot worse, obviously, but it just it just hit me, you know, in the heart that this this 
this incredibly unique specimen suddenly is no longer whole. So it's been three <laughs> plus years. You finally have the thing in your hand and what, eight hours and later this, or less, it's been thing mostly destroyed? Yeah. Well, not mostly destroyed, but it was it was definitely <laughs> it had less to it than I had hoped. <laughs> less um, valuable than so, it was. Yeah. So I, I tied the tag back into what was, you know, the, the, the main body of the specimen and I set it back at this time I put it in I think in a trunk, closed the lid, locked it, made sure that nothing could get in. And, you know, it, it dried. But, uh, you know, I was hoping that over the next couple of days that maybe we'd be able to find some more and I might be able to get one more specimen. And because, as you were saying earlier, uh, you know, series have a lot of value, series of specimens, because of being able to see variation and so on. I was hoping maybe we could find another one. But we we were not able to. That was the only one we were able to find on that visit. Uh, but I should reiterate, this is a single road that passes through a huge area of un uh, basically inaccessible habitat. And, uh, to, to imagine, I, I know there's some folks out there who, who have asked me in the past, like, how do you know this isn't the only one? Well, you know, the, the, the odds of a single individual, of the last remaining individual of the species being on a road that is the only access to this huge area of habitat are mighty small. So that's where that, that lay for quite some time. And the next event happened in 2011. So many years later, that was 2004 that we got this first specimen. 2011, uh, a, a colleague named Frank Wright, uh, who was a German who had gone to grad school in Australia, uh, studying Elanias, actually, and a couple other South American flycatchers, Zimmerius. Uh, and then he did a postdoc at Harvard University, and that's where he was at the time. And he'd been doing field work in Bolivia, uh, specifically related to studying Elanians. And so he had gone down into a valley in La Paz Department, sort of western Bolivia near the Peruvian border, um, and had been sort of birding and, and looking for his Elanias in this uh, open country habitat around the town of Apollo, kind of like the, the Greek god Apollo. Right? <clears throat> and... Um, he, he went down a valley that went down below a, a large plateau where the town of Apollo is. And he was there in November and December. Now, this valley, it turns out, is highly seasonal and deciduous in nature. The, the trees are largely deciduous. And most of the studies that had happened in this valley had taken place between uh, March and August, I think, or September, which is the dry season in the area. It's easier to get in there in the dry season, but it's basically their winter. So a lot of birds are not in their breeding condition. And, uh, you know, apparently one of the things that had been overlooked is this, this bird. So, so Frank was in this Valley and he heard this bird song. He eventually got a recording of it and he played the bird in and saw it and recognized it to be this new tanager. And so the next time he was able to get in contact with me by email, when he got back to the city of La Paz, he sent me an email. I said, Dan, I've, I think I found your tanager from the Manu Road in Bolivia. And the thing is, it's really common here. It's everywhere. <laughs> they're all over this valley and they're singing up a storm. And he, he right there, he was like, I think what's going on is this bird is migratory, that it doesn't exist in this valley in the non-breeding season. It goes to possibly to Manu and winter's there. 
And it's not present in Manu during the wet season when it's in this valley breeding. And, uh, you know, it just sort of all made sense. You know, the moment he brought that up, it was like, of course, that explains everything. Because every time I followed up, you know, we'd, we'd had the bird on the tour in October. And then I'd go back in November to see if I could find it again. And I couldn't. Well, November is the rainy season in this valley. The birds would have migrated out. And then, you know, the people who were going to this valley doing surveys were going there in June, July, August, and they were missing this bird because it's not present there. And so it just kind of made a lot of sense. So, Like ships passing uh, in the night, basically, for years. Yeah, it was just this this uh, sort of – it's a rare event, but there are quite a few, uh, mostly flycatchers in the tropics that are intratropical migrants. If you listen to last week's show, you'll hear about Willamians that do this. <laughs> and, um, but it's not common with tanagers. There's actually most of the tanagers that do this are seed eaters, which, of course, were not recognized as tanagers until recently. And they're mostly nomadic. Uh, there are a couple that are truly migratory, but many of them are nomadic. And they, you know, grasslands are ephemeral things. And so they, they track grassland or seeding bamboo, which is also very cyclical and ephemeral. So these are birds that are generally nomadic. So there's relatively few tropical passerines that are migratory that remain within the tropics. And uh, another one of note is this bird called the black and white tanager that breeds mostly in northwestern Peru and southwestern Ecuador, again, in deciduous forests. And then it actually crosses the Andes and it winters on the Amazonian slope of the Andes and down into the Guadua bamboo lowlands of southeastern Peru and adjacent Bolivia and Brazil. And it actually turns out that these these two tanagers, this undescribed one and the black and white tanager, have, to me, it seems like a lot in common, that uh, their their migratory habits seem to be very similar to one another. So there's a, a precedence that was set by the black and white tanager that this new bird seems to fit, even though it turns out later on we discovered they're not that closely related to each other, but they seem to have similar migratory systems. So that was kind of this incredible revelation, I think, that really that made all made the pieces fit. Thing. Yeah, it all made, it all kind of made sense. So we arranged uh, LSU arranged to go down and revisit this valley. This fellow Frank joined us. There was a LSU student that joined us, and then a, another friend, a fellow named uh, Jonathan Schmidt, who was a grad student at the University of New Mexico at the time, joined us as well. And we had a friend a driver that I usually have on the tours that I do in Bolivia joined us and he drove us out to this place. We drove from Santa Cruz city all the way out to La Paz and then down into this valley. It's like a three day drive to get there uh, through like every possible habitat you can get in <laughs> Bolivia, which is a lot as, as you guys know, cause you've both been there. And um, so it was quite an epic drive to get out there, but we got down to this valley and we set up a camp up on a side road and, and, you know, after, a morning of birding that we discovered, yeah, this thing is all over the place. You know, you could hear the song echoing across the valley. What was that moment like? Like the first time you got out and you're hearing multiple individuals singing. Well, it took took a little while to detect the first one. I, I, I was, so we arrived there in the afternoon, set up camp, you know, spent the night and the next morning, then we all went separate directions. And uh, so I was hiking on this trail. And I started hearing one singing up on the slope above me. And I was like, that's the bird. There it is. So I hiked up the slope, you know, bushwhacking up through this dense understory. And I got up onto the side of the ridge and got kind of underneath the bird, got some recordings of it, played it back and watched it overhead. You know, it was in this tree overhead and so on. 
and it was, you know, it was like seeing an old friend that I hadn't had contact with for a long time. It was this great feeling, you know, and so again, we, we had to collect a couple of specimens cause we, we needed tissues to do this genetic study and so on. So I collected the bird and spent the morning walking along. Uh, I think I heard a couple more and then I got back down to camp for lunch and the other guys had come in and they all were kind of glum and empty handed. And I pulled the bird out and put it on the table and everyone was like, <laughs> bleepity bleep. I can't believe it. <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, so then, you know, once we'd gotten an idea of where to look and so on, oh, there's the train that is right behind my house, by the way. Wow. I forgot about yeah, that train fun. at your house. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. What are we, is uh, that bringing uh, the boudin? No, no, it's not. That's, I guess, heading to <laughs> Chicago. So. I hear a rail. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah. go. A single, a single rail. Yeah. All right. Actually, so that, I like that. I, you know, this, it, it uh, it, you know, people really realize this is actually real. This is alive. This is, this, this is not scripted. I, wish, I, I mean, right. I'm sure. Is, I wish you had some video though scripted. showing like your, your, pl- your whole place <laughs> yeah, like wobbling shape. around. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, totally not going to cut that. So yeah, over the, over the <laughs> next couple of days, we discovered that, that this bird was, was actually abundant in this valley. I mean, I think we encountered something like 20 singing males in about three square kilometers, something like that. It was some crazy number. And, but the funny thing was we did not find a female. All we were encountering were singing males. And again, so this sort of, you know, to come up with a just so story, we, we were guessing that what's going on is these birds had probably just arrived from where they'd been spending the non-breeding season. And these were males that were just trying to set up their territories, attract mates. And that was either the females hadn't arrived yet or the females had arrived and were already sitting on nests. Did it ever, did you, did you ever think that maybe they just looked the same and both sang or? or Well, we did because at that point that all we were familiar with was the the male plumage. That's the only thing that that I had seen at that point. Um, So, you know, we, we spent, uh, I think about a week in this place. And, um, it wasn't until the day we were departing that we saw two females and they actually differed considerably. They don't, well, one thing I didn't say is that, so on top of the description I'd already been giving you, this canary yellow bird with a black eyebrow and pink bill, it also has a bushy crest. That's kind of like, I don't know if we really have, it's less developed than a tufted titman. It's not pointed. It's like a, Great crested flycatcher or something? Yeah, I guess that might be a reasonable yeah, comparison. Yeah. Um, but it's bright kind of saffron orange. It's a really like a, a nice colorful, it's a little bit more orange than the rest of the bird's plumage. So it's a it's a really attractive uh, adornment, if you will. Um, but the female lacks the eyebrow and lacks the crest. And she has a pink bill or patchy pink and blackish bill. Uh, and we saw two of them. We got one specimen of that plumage. And she, the, the bird we collected actually had an egg in the oviduct. So these were females in the act of laying eggs. So that, in you know, in retrospect, probably explained why we couldn't find other females because they were all sitting on eggs on their nests. And the only way we were finding males is because they were singing, really. So it really seems like this bird keeps a super low profile if it's not singing because it's so hard to find them. And, and the habitat in this valley it's deciduous forest, but there is a uh, component in the understory of 
guado bamboo or bamboo-like grasses that seems to be pretty common through most of the places where we were finding territories of this bird. So my, I still have the gut feeling, uh, although, you know, I think it's still not quite certain yet, but it, my gut feeling is this bird is tied in some respect to bamboo structure of some kind and it's as its microhabitat of choice, which seems to hold both where we found it in the Manu Road and now this, this valley. And it's, it's really impenetrable habitat. If you try to get into it, this bamboo is just dense and it's thorny and it's difficult to get into. And so it's hard to kind of go bashing around the understory looking for nests and so on. Although I hope at some point somebody will do that and we'll find some because it'd be really interesting to know more about that aspect of its life cycle. But so we, we, here we have a, a huge part of the story. And this was really the thing that we had been waiting for. So this was in 2012. We'd gotten some more specimens. We finally had tissues. We had this incredible new aspect of this bird story that it's an intratropical migrant. It, it breeds in deciduous forest and winters, you know, a couple hundred miles away in the foothills of the Andes. And then there was another one of these incredible unforeseen events. Basically, we were working with a museum that's based in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, and there was a an issue with the bureaucracy of that museum uh, and some of the politics in Bolivia that basically made it, we were told by the people of the museum, you can't publish anything referencing these specimens. And so after having waited all these years, <laughs> having to have suffered this bird losing its legs and all that business, once again, having been so close to, to finally having everything in set in place to publish this new bird, and have it all taken away from us again was absolutely infuriating. Devastating. It was so incredibly difficult to just feel like, you know what, I'm just going to publish this. Who cares about, you know, the politics in Bolivia kind of thing. But of course, were that to happen, they would probably never want to work with us again. And, you know, there's so much more to do in Bolivia. Um, and that would just not be cool. Right. And, <laughs> so and meanwhile, basically. meanwhile, you're like this now, like there's some word out about this thing, right? There's some, well, yeah, like there's, that's right. There's, we actually, there's people that know about this bird. They're, they're like, because you guys in the process of trying to figure out where the heck it was, you kind of had circulated some of the description, right? And there, like yeah, there's word, people yeah. were seeing it. Uh, you know, around and you're, you know, here you, here you've spent what close to a decade um, trying to track this, this down yeah. since discovery. And the last thing you need is some, you know, wackadoo publish some paper and describe it right out from under you. Right. That was a concern as this was it going was. on. Yeah. Um, it, that's definitely true. And, and, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that folks are aware that it exists and that you're, you're, you know, you kind of have your, uh, <laughs> it sounds a little bit silly, but you kind of have your name attached to it to know that, you know, there is somebody working on this bird kind of thing, but you don't want to release too much information to then just sort of Did a little bit of a delicate balance. A yeah. To put out a roadmap that someone could just follow and, and, and like you say, basically kind of scoop you on the, the, the description aspect of and, it, which. And yeah, in the meantime pretty, too, you, you know, when, one of the things that's going on is that through Frank's work and this tanager, people are finding out that this valley in Apollo in, in Bolivia is really important. Like it's a conservation issue mm. and it's just sort of sitting there. Some of the information that 
would make it kind of really sort of significant, clearly valuable and significant is not allowed to happen. It's kind mm-hmm. of a infuriating in that respect too, from the conservation viewpoint of like, well, wow, you know? Yes and um, no. I mean, the, the, the valley is actually kind of below the town of Apollo and it's, it's right on the border of Madidi national park, which is one of the largest national parks in Bolivia. And it's largely inaccessible. Uh, where we were was outside the park on along a road that leads down to some, I don't remember what the name of the town at the end of it was. Um, and so that road goes through, you know, there's little villages and so on along there, but most of the forest along the road is still in pretty good shape. But, you know, that was now over 10 years ago. And, and it turns out that uh, there are international interests that are actually trying to punch that road through to the, I think it may even be that they want it to go through a corner of Medidi National Park now, but it's going to be uh, extended to meet up with the city of Ruranabaki, which is way out in the Amazonian lowlands farther uh, out there. And of course, the moment you put in a high quality road that connects two major cities, you're going to have colonists coming in right. and just you know, open festering wound and, in the forest and cutting forest and putting in their little, what we call chakras, their little uh, farm plots and having animals that they have to cut down forest to put pasture and all this other stuff. So yeah, the conservation concern along the road immediately is, so I sent the tissues to this fellow, Kevin Burns, who uh, has been studying the tanagers. He's the guy actually responsible for shuffling around tanagers and, you know, putting the piranga tanagers in the cardinals and, He's the guy. He's the guy. He's he's (laughs) Mr. Tanager. So uh, we sent the tissues to him for him to figure out what this bird is related to. It turns out, indeed, it is a Tanager, a true Tanager. And it's related to two distinctive species that are each in in their own genus. One is called the gray-headed Tanager, which is found from Mexico to Argentina. Uh, And uh, the other one is called the black-goggled, has this cool cool English name, the black-goggled Tanager which is found in the Southern Andes and in the coast of Brazil in the Atlantic forest. And the two birds are not really very similar to one another at all. Um, as far as I know, neither of them has, you know, has any known migratory uh, aspects to their life cycle. The gray-headed tanager does not have distinctive male and female plumages. The black goggle tanager does. They both have a bit of a bushy crest. Uh, so that is kind of similar to this new bird. Uh, but they're not really, you look at them and they, they don't really look much like this bird at all. So, and then if you, you know, look at the, the trees, the, 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 the three species are closely related, but the new tanager, it wasn't always clear which of the two others it was most closely related to. And that's what are called long branches, meaning these things have been separated for millions of years from one another. So we decided that the best course of action was to give this its own genus, which is what we did. You know, I was going to say that um, when I first saw images of this tanager before it was published, you know, there, there were images out there, you know, without a name, even on eBird. I, in my head, made it partially because of the long shape and so forth into a group that's mostly black with mm-hmm. crown stripes, a tachyphonus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Yeah. You know, that's what I thought. It's probably one of those, except it's not black, it's yellow. And it's yeah. got that little bushy crest and little stripe. And it's amazing that when I read the paper, I was like, what? You know, I was like, it's not one of those. You well, know, I- it's, you're, you're actually kind of right. It, it, that This tanager falls into that group, right? So mm-hmm. 
the tachyphonus, in fact, is not, it's not, it has to be broken into several genera because they're not closest relatives to one another. There's a couple of other species of tangers interjected in between. Oh, so right. it's, it's no longer monophyletic, you mm. know, using the jargon of, of phylogenetics. So you're right in that it does fall into that group of tangers, but in that group are gray-headed and black-goggled tangers. And so this it. is part of that. You're, so you actually, your, your intuition is accurate. Not bad, um, Albert. It is part Not of that. Armchair I was off by a few. Mi- yeah, I was off by a few million years. That's but- <laughs> right. But that's pretty good. Um, so yeah, it's actually it is related to that group generally. Uh, but it, its its closest relatives are these two other tanagers. And so because of these aspects that you know it it doesn't particularly look uh, or sound like either of those two tanagers and its relationship to them is not it's not clear which one is the closest relative. Um, we just figured that having a new genus is the way to go. And, you know, from the moment that I first, uh, you know, was sure that this thing was real back in 2003, when we saw it, you know, it kind of, I was thinking this is going to be a new genus, whatever this thing is, it's going to be a new genus. So it was kind of cool that that really was kind of the best course to take. And, uh, so then, you know, one of the things obviously to, to then come up with is what are you going to call it? And, you know, originally with this one specimen that was lacking its legs, I was tempted to name this thing Apodothropus, which <laughs> means, you know, tanager with no legs. Right. You've always <laughs> you know, been good with swift. the names, Dan. Always good with yeah. the names. The, the Swifts, of course, are in family Apodidae. There's a, there's the, the type genus is Apus, which means no feet, which because yeah. you know, folks in Europe didn't think uh, Swifts had feet. Uh, so, that's where a podothropus is. Yeah, it's sort of like, name. you know, the beardless triangulate being imberbe, which means <laughs> without right. a beard. That's right. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's like, <laughs> so if somebody ever shaves, a friend of yours, you know, has a beard, shaves, you're going imberbe. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, uh, that was Fun one thing Latin. I was considering. Um, and then, you know, I was also considering naming this thing the El Dorado Tanager, because it was in many, you know, yeah, Dorado is Spanish for golden and it was golden in color. But at the same time, you know, this was like the myth of El Dorado, this, this, you know, golden treasure that people search for can never find. Like this bird kept getting snatched away out of my fingers so many times that it just felt like that. You know, it was just, it was incredibly frustrating. The, the, the history of this bird, uh, I would definitely say caused me an inordinate amount of stress and frustration. Well, it only <laughs> took a, almost 20 years, right? Was it? it It only took 20, over 20 yeah. years. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, uh, it almost is to the point now where it, it seeing the bird kind of makes me feel bad. You know, you would think that this, this cool bird, <laughs> this, this discovery would be, reason just to feel you know excitement and elation about having been associated with this thing and in some ways that has been overcome by the the history of this thing it's kind of it's gotten kind of loaded cringe yeah it just makes me cringe when i think about all the all the things that happened that just were so frustrating but in the end you you can turn this around over the years because this this is actually one of the most uh unique fantastic looking birds to have been discovered 
described anywhere on earth in our lifetimes. Hmm. And one day you're going to wake up then and go, wow, you know, like uh, I actually did have a part of this into the, the, well, the, the, you know, the more difficult parts will blend in towards the back. I think of, of your mind. Well, I don't know. It's like, it's one of those <laughs> things where, you know, it's like a, a puppy dog that was beaten as a, as a puppy and it grows up and it's always a little, a little fearful of when you roll up a newspaper or something, but you know, I kind of have that continuing I think there's always going to be triggered. a bit You of get that, triggered by your own that, tanager. Yeah. yeah. The tanager will, will always give me a little bit of a wince every time I think about it. But, you know, I, I have to admit that, you know, there's there's not a lot of folks who have had, you know, the the opportunity to be involved in discovering new birds, much less several. Uh, I, I realize that I've been exceptionally lucky in that respect. Um, and on top of that, relatively few of those discoveries have been so distinctive that they're kind of slapping your face new. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very rare thing indeed to, to actually run into something that's so new that the moment you see it in the field, you know, it's new. And so, you know, I, I guess I haven't really appreciated this until fairly recently, but I have been very lucky to have been in the right place at the right time to be involved in multiple cases of this. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's that is something that I, I, the twelve-year-old me looking at that Audubon magazine and thinking, "Wow, people still find new birds." Yeah, think about you calling up Van Remsen I've, that time. Like I've you get, you probably, you probably to, didn't foresee it working out quite this way. No, mm -hmm. I, I definitely did not. Yeah. Um, so that that really, I think the twelve-year-old me would be pretty happy about that sort of result, but. I should I should say so the bird's name the name we finally came up with for this thing uh, is uh, Heliothraupus O'Neilly. So Heliothraupus is Greek for tanager of the sun. You know, sun referring mostly to this. It's tropical. It's in kind of a sunny environment and it's bright yellow. So sun just seems to get it makes sense. So Heliothraupus is tanager of the sun, and then O'Neilly refers to John O'Neill, who again was a hero of mine since I was 12 when I first found out about his field work. And John, you know, I, I, again, I was incredibly lucky when I came to LSU, John and I became really good friends and he has been a mentor of mine for most of my career. And, you know, I, his wife says that he sort of considers me the son he never had, which is kind of a huge honor. And so this is something that I felt, uh, you know, John has earned, he's, he's, you know, he's the guy who's discovered all these incredible new species, including his very first one was a new genus of tanager, Wentworth Thraupus, the orange-throated tanager, which was the bird that blew the doors off of South America in the 1960s and, and made people realize that, yeah, in fact, there are still a lot of new birds yet to be discovered down there. And so it just seemed kind of appropriate. John now is, uh, you know, his, his neotropical ornithological days probably have winded down. Um, Few have made so it anywhere close to the impact. Uh, of yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so it just felt like it was a very fitting homage to a, a great man to have his career begin with a spectacular new genus of tanager. And, you know, one could say it's ending with a spectacular new genus of tanager named for him. So, and, you know, that that's something that I'm really proud to be able to, to, uh, to do. And the word inti. Yeah, so the common name, the English name that we've chosen for this bird, uh, a couple of nicknames have been created over the years. My, my, 
my own nickname since the beginning was the Manu Mystery Yellowbird, which I guess is not really a very good one. That's not your finest work, Dan. You've done way better than that (laughs) elsewhere. (laughs) But uh, Gary Rosenberg had a client who had gotten wind of this, and he he came up with the name Kill Bill Tanager because of the bird's color pattern, the black and the yellow. Right, like Uma Thurman in in Kill Bill when she's wearing the yellow jumpsuit with the the mask and all. So... That name has, I think, been picked up in, in a lot of folks. And yeah, a lot of people were calling it that for a long time. But our final decision was to call it the NT Tanager. And NT, sort of in the same vein as Helio and Heliothropus, refers to the sun. It's the Quechua word for sun. And it was also a god to Inca. The Inti the was one of the most important uh, sort of supernatural characters in their world, basically. So it it just kind of felt like that would be a a nice name to give this bird. And so far, it sounds like it's gotten pretty positive uh, reaction from all involved. So that's the bird's final name is Heliothropus O'Neilly, the Inti Tanager. Wow. Hell of a bird, man. Hell of a bird. Hell of a story. And what, two decades in the making uh, to finally bring it off? Was it just two weeks ago now that the... Description was formally published, and I must have yeah. been a monkey off In your fact, back. A, exactly. a lot of folks have been waiting on it a long time. Uh, you know, those of us that know you, know Gary, know the others involved in the story. Just uh, it, it, it really is. I, 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 you know, it's the road to El Dorado. I swear, it's just like long, <laughs> long journey. Um, so anyway, congratulations, Lots of twists, and thanks six turns for and detail. a lot of frustrating dead ends too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what makes it a great story, I think, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of the the thing that's so amazing about this. Like this, this is to me one of the most exciting aspects of of this kind of ornithology. Is it's still an aspect of what we sort of think of as a past age of discovery and exploration that's still going on today and with modern technology at our side that allows us to actually make recordings of sounds and, and take, you know, genetic samples and do things that people 150, 200 years ago had no concept of, of how to do it, you know, and, and what we, the kind of information that we can gather and, and assimilate is amazing now. And, uh, so yeah, these are kind of the last frontiers of ornithology, you know, as far as, just discovering what's there. I mean, that age of exploration hasn't ended yet. You know, the, the stuff that Darwin and, and Wallace were doing. And now the, the amazing thing is that there's, there's young folks in the countries themselves who are, have the interest and the opportunity to participate in this as well. And so that is really exciting to, to me, to, to see Peruvians getting excited about this and participating in this and, you know, having a chance to to have their their stamp on uh, some of these discoveries as well yeah i i I think you know we yeah we are really in the golden age of birding and ornithology and it sort of seems to be like each year like we've talked about that before it seems like Mm -hmm. we're further in the golden age that a lot of the technology is really helping understand we have more people watching we have people locally that are getting involved and we have more people interested in the conservation it's just you know the only i just wish it would have happened earlier you know uh for us so that we 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 you know we could have been ahead of the curve in terms of um some of the conservation issues but we're we're getting to 
to the point where we're almost at the sort of pivotal point where more people in the world are going to care about this than people that don't care about this. So, and I thank yeah. you, Dan, for the work you've done to, you know, not only educate people about this, but to describe these birds, to bring them to focus and help in, in, in the most vital stage of conserving is to actually know that these things exist mm-hmm. and to tell us a story. It's been amazing. Yeah. I think. Well, just to yeah, hear sort of from, from the person who did it. To tie this back into the way this, this uh, conversation started, you know, uh, you guys are doing, I think as much of a, of a important task in this as, as I am, because you're the folks who are the mouthpiece to the birding public who are informing them on these kinds of scientific studies and you know communication is so important to uh, to educate and to to inform folks who might not otherwise be aware of you know, the science that goes on behind the scenes as it were so thanks to you guys for for the service of uh, of communicating to the public yeah man we we just like you know bsing about birds really Mm-hmm. <laughs> well who doesn't yeah that's what we're all here for exactly <laughs> yeah yeah well thanks so much dan um this has been uh it's been epic we're looking forward to uh sharing this story Fantastic. with everybody thanks uh everybody and um yeah we will be back with more soon here at lifelist <laughs>